Awakens. Uh, but before going to see Last Jedi, did anybody binge watch uh, all the Star Wars movies? There's a few of them now, about 85. And so, uh, so, uh, but before, th- so here's a clip when Han Solo is talking about this, this temple and this Jedi. But if you had binge watched it, you would know that he at one point discounted that it was all real. Back in the 1977 version, he's talking about all that type of stuff. He says, all I need is a good blaster. Yeah, that all of that isn't, like, it's kind of mumbo-jumbo, but now he's looking back on it, looking at this map, looking at like, what happened and, and saying that this is, I'm not discounting anymore, there's, there's a purpose, there's, there's, a, there's a reality to this. And I think as, as humans, we sometimes do the same thing, we'll look at something initially and we'll go to a point of discounting it. So let's say if you're binge-watching a TV show, let's say you're binge-watching a movie series, you know that person that, like, is watching and they annoy you because at the very beginning, they're getting their popcorn, they're Instagramming, they're hashtagging it. And in the very beginning of a TV show or a movie is some of the very important details that seem a little mundane, but later on it becomes very important. And then later on, you have to pause the movie to explain to the person Instagramming what's going on because they were too busy doing all that stuff. They discounted the importance of the beginning, and now it's, you're annoyed by them. Or you're in college. And you wish that you would not have discounted algebra, algebra, algebra class. Uh, <laughs> words are hard for me. I do it for a living. And uh, so anyway, so you wish you wouldn't have discounted that because now it would mean a lot to you in college. Or you're in your job and you wish you wouldn't have discounted a college class because it, it's really beneficial to you. You just kind of got by, but now you're wishing you would have put more into it. We discount things all the time, only later on we realize that it actually has some worth. And so as a series, we, we surveyed the community. We asked them, why do you hate God? Why do you hate the church? And, and they said a whole bunch of things. The first week we looked at hypocrites. That was the number one thing. I hate your church. I hate the, your God because I look at the way people are living. and I'm like, I don't want anything of it. And so we had to humbly say, we're sorry and we agree. It's disgusting. Well, then we're going to, today we're looking at this book as the Holy Word of God, and we're going to talk about this and how people want to discount this book, but before we get calling this the Word of God, we have to look at God. So last week we addressed, is this all a big fairy tale? Is this just, is this just like the tooth fairy, or is there something like actually behind this? And so we looked at God and, and hopefully got to a point where it was actually reasonable to believe that there might be a God. And, and so today we want to look at the Holy Word of God. Here's some of the things that people said. One person said, I don't believe the Bible is the word of God, point, period. Because the Bible, the next one is, because the Bible contradicts itself, the leaders of the church contradict the Bible and each other, and organized religion changes and makes up the rules as it goes along. A third person said, because, they hide be- because people hide behind a 2,000-year-old book to judge and tell others what they think is right or wrong. Today's Christians are so far from the original intent of Christianity, it's a joke. And as I read through these comments, and there are plenty others, it broke my heart, and it, and it, and it troubled me on two different levels. The, the first thing that it, where it troubled me, and, and if you're Instagramming right now or whatnot, I'm going to ask that you pause, uh, stop counting the likes, because you're, you're, going to, you're going to take me out of context, and people are going to come and burn our church. Because what, what, what troubles me with this is that my faith isn't built on this book. My faith is built inside of this book. And that's such an important thing because people are flooding and in mass exodus, leaving the church. And, and perhaps it's because 
they, they, they've built their faith on this book, and then when they get in a car and they're, and they're driving around and someone challenges their belief and, and challenging the book and doing their own little Google search, all of a sudden because it's based on this book, it all goes to crud. And, but really, this, the, this book wasn't written like that. This book was written to show me Jesus. So it's built on the words inside. It's built to show me a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And so if I make this out to be a scientific book, it's going to crumble. If I make this out to be an academic book, it's going to crumble. But if I look at it for its intended purpose to show me the person of Jesus, then it has infinite value and worth. And I trust that this book is complete, inerrant, the holy word of God. All my previous comments don't change that. I believe it's 100% the spoken, inerrant word of God. How did it come to be? Not many people, some people argue about the Old Testament. We can, we're going we're gonna to assume that for right now, but let's, because well, the one that's really scrutinized is the New Testament. How, how, how did this come to be? How, how did Christianity flourish right after Jesus before there was 27 books in the New Testament? Before people could say, well, Jesus tells me this, I know, for the Bible tells me so, when there wasn't a Bible. It was flourishing. It was, it was being mass-produced at, at rates that would only be challenged when the printing press was, was invented. People were spending hard-earned money to buy papyrus papers, to, to hire scribes, and, and they were making a living and a career after uh, uh, copying letters. How, how did it come to be? How did we get the 27 books of the New Testament? Well, there was a council. There were a few councils that would meet. They scrutinized it, and they, and they should have. If this shows me the person of Jesus Christ, then this is a very important book. If, it's, if we're going to say it's inspired, well, what books are inspired and what books aren't? And they, and they challenged certain things. They, they looked at it, and they, they argued uh, authorship. You, you probably have maybe been to some churches or looked at some churches, and, and some have a Bible that have extra books. A pseudepigrapha at, search, at, at some point where they would look at authorship and they would say, well, this person is claiming to be Moses or this person is claiming to be somebody that are not or, or they're using a surname. And so right in the mere title, there's a lie. And, and you can't have a lie in, in the word of God. And so they looked at authorship that it had to be somebody that was either with the risen Lord or somebody that was backed by the risen Lord. They they looked at uniqueness. It couldn't be a book that was just a commentary of one of these books. It had to be a unique book in, in the original book. And, and if, so if it was unique and added something to scriptures, they added it in. And then, and then thirdly, they, they, uh, <coughs> they looked at, was it accepted by the early church? The early churches, as these letters are circulating around, as these books are circulating around, if the early church didn't see that these had any value, then, then they didn't add it into the Word of God. And so they looked at those three things, and, and they said, okay, here are 27 books that we think match this test, and by A.D. 39, the discussion was over. The early church said, this is the holy inspired, 66 books, Old Testament, New Testament, this is the holy Word of God, and so they, they shut the matter, and, and my thing is, we should probably shut the matter too and consider it the same thing, that the matter is shut. But now people are saying, well, what about... The original copies. Little pastor boy, you don't have any original copies. How, how do you know that what you're reading is, is from the actual original, the letters that are, are being passed around? And you're absolutely right. We don't have any originals. In, in the 1700s, we had, we had 30,000 copies of the originals. In the 1800s, we had about 50,000. But now, we have about 200,000 copies of the original. So you're absolutely right. We don't have any originals. 
but we have 200,000 copies. So what happens? You take all of the copies and you compile them together and, and, and mathematically, two studies that have been done, secular and, and Christian studies, would look at this and say, if you're going to compile 200,000 copies of the original and compile it together, that you can take one study said 98.33% certainty that this is the original work. Another one was 99.75% certainty that this is the original work. Okay, well, that doesn't hold any weight. So then there's errors in this book. Now, I can't trust this because there are errors. Even, even in the copies that we're using, there are errors. And you know what? You're right. Take the book home. Take this right now. Go home and write down word for word every single word. And if you don't make a mistake, come back next week and I'll give you a $50 bill. Because here's some unintentional errors that are going to happen. As people are, are writing this down, they, they skip a line and all of a sudden they, they missed a whole paragraph or missed a whole line. Or they're writing, 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 and all of a sudden they wrote uh, two lines back to back because they're just copying. Or they left out a literal letter or, or, or switched a letter around. Like very unintentional errors that would happen. But when you have 200,000 copies, you spot those errors. Sometimes there were intentional errors that a scribe would, would change a certain word from a, from a theological standpoint, or not a theological standpoint, but just really a preference standpoint. Or, or they, would, they would combine two accounts into one account. And so by the end of the day, though, we can, we can, we can even see the intentional errors and come with 98 point to 99% certainty that this is the original word of God. Okay, so if that doesn't hold up, well, then, but, but when I read this, there are some things that are, aren't scientifically accurate, and so it's all a bunch of garbage. I'm going to discount it. Well, here's, here's one example of that. They'll, they'll look at Jesus. He's talking to a bunch of people. He says, you have faith. It's the smallest seed. It's, it's the mustard seed. Scientifically, in 2018, we know the mustard seed is not the smallest seed. But when Jesus is talking to a room of farmers and a room of shepherds, if all of a sudden he dropped this truth bomb that scientifically the, the smallest seed is XYZ. You don't know what XYZ is, but that's the smallest seed. They would have thought he was a lunatic. They would have had no understanding. So Jesus said the common, the most common thing they would know to be the smallest seed. He said that they took it as truth because that's what they understood. So I look at this as the inerrant holy word of God. But it troubles me for a second point these, these, as I look at these surveys and think about it. It troubles me for a second point, though. The unbelieving word wants to discount it and say it has a, it's of no worth. A lot of them said because Christians are picking and choosing. They're judging. They're doing this, the other thing. And, and I have to say that you're right. That every day Christians are living and picking and choosing. Every day via our actions, we, like an unbelieving world, are discounting the value of this book. And if we're going to discount this book, why would, why would the unbelieving world think it has any worth or value? If we're not living as, as if this does, if we're, if, we're, if we're picking and choosing, of course, they're never going to look as it, at it, as it as if it has any, any at all value. And so I want to look at Paul today. I want to look at in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. I think Paul makes some suggestions on, on why the word of God has, has eternal worth and value to us. He starts off in verse 14, he says, But as for you, continue in what you learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. 
he's, he's looking at Timothy. He, he was a mentor to Timothy, and he's looking at him, and he's saying, I, I've, helped raise you, or I've helped raise you up, but really some women poured into your life and taught you the Old Testament scriptures. And so continue on. Keep going. These scriptures have worth. You need to hang on to this. As time goes on, as you get older, as society gets further and further away from the word of God, you need to hang on to this truth. And I think he shares with us three reasons as to why our big thought for the morning is the Bible has eternal worth. That you and I, unbelievers or not, we have to look at this as having uh, eternal worth for three reasons. The first is it's, it's an offer of hope. The Bible has eternal worth because it offers us hope. He, he continues on, he's saying, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, that those that would take the Old Testament scriptures, and that's the early church when it was flourishing, all they had was the Old Testament scriptures, that they would look at this and they would be able to find faith because they're reading the Old Testament and they're saying, here comes the Messiah, here comes the Messiah, here comes the Messiah, and here Jesus is perfectly fits everything. He, he is the prophesied Messiah that you can study through the Old Testament and you can find Jesus all throughout it and that Jesus was the answer to, this, to the Old Testament prophecies. You can, you can look through this book and find faith in that. Man, it creates a problem. God's cause calling me to be holy and perfect, but by his biblical standard, I can't be that. So praise God. You turn the pages to the New Testament, and he sent a Savior to die in my place that I can place faith into and find eternal hope because if, it's, if Jesus is not in here, I'm damned for eternity, and there is no hope. But through it, I find the problem and the answer, Jesus Christ. Because that is the intended purpose for this book, is to show me who Jesus is. If I try to manipulate it, if I try to look at, look at it as an, an academic book or a science book, then I'm not reading it, reading it for its intended purpose. Isn't that a form of discounting something? Like, like when, if I look at it, if I open up the book of, of Genesis and I say, well, well, God spoke and the world came to be, well... Well, scientifically, how did it happen? I don't know, because that's not the purpose of Genesis. The purpose of Genesis isn't to lay out. He says, I spoke, it came to be, I gave you a perfect garden, you blew it, now I'll show you the rest of the pages of how I was the answer to your problem. Like, I don't know scientifically how it happened, but this isn't a science book. It shows me who Jesus is. And so here is, I'm staying on theme, Star Wars. Jonathan, you can take this home with you afterwards, all right? This is a thing of Star Wars. It will make you, Graham, you'll have to tell me what this is. I don't know what this, it will make you some Star Wars thing. And, and you open it up and, and you get two manuals, two manuals to make that silly thing. Book one and book two. Book one has 45 steps to make that thing. If you're like, some of you all like nerding out right now, I'm like blown away. Two books for that. This will never make you a pirate ship not going to make you Noah's Ark. It's not going to make any of that. And if you skip pages 3, 4, and 5, or only do the second book and not the first or whatnot, you'll never get to the, get the intended outcome. The only way to get the intended outcome is to read these books for the intended purpose. And so the intended outcome of the Word of God is to show us who Jesus Christ is. And so we have to read this not as an academic book, not as a science book, although I believe every word of it, and I believe that this is an errant, 
but we have to read it for its intended purpose. Show me who Jesus is. Show me the answer behind my problem. That's the only way to say that this book has any, any value. The second thing that it offers up, it offers up is it's an offer of hope. It's an offer of growth. A verse that many of us Christians in this room would know all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the power of God that spoke and the world came to be, that the oceans were crafted, the mountains were crafted, the mere word of God made it all. That the, the word, the powerful word of God, God spoke through people, inspired them, and they wrote the word of God, the power behind creation is a power in these pages. Because the word of God is inspired, all of it, every single word of it. Not some, not, not certain sections, all of it, every word, Old and New Testament, inspired and errant. The people that were writing it, Jeremiah said, quoting God, he said, I have put my word in your mouth. That these people that were writing it, they, many of them knew and they were, they were unapologetic that they were writing scripture. They, they, they knew it and they, and they took it and they, and they did it. They, they understood that there was inspiration behind it, that many of this wasn't their own words, although it might, some of it had their own flavor. But here's some of the things that the survey, some of the other people in the survey said. I'll read it as I read it. Because it's based on a made-up book with a bunch of men who wrote it. Seems pretty self-evident to me. The Bible was another one. The Bible was written by men. It uses an outdated manual to discriminate. The Bible is, a, is written by men. And most of what that book is either meant to control, is probably meant to control the masses. And I looked at it, and there's a lot more that I deleted out of there. He just kept attacking. Oh, if it's written by men, I can't have anything to do with it. Part of that is because the church, we have done a poor job of valuing women. Part of it is society that now we're, we're, we're swinging the pendulum so far that anything written by a dude, throw it out. It's a bunch of garbage. I'll just say it matter-of-factly. You can argue the culture back in the day all you want. It is what it is. But if it was written by women, they probably, it, we probably wouldn't have it in our hands today. I'm not saying that's okay. I'm saying that's the reality. So God used men, and, and he wrote through, through men. And, but, but does that mean that God doesn't value women? Not in the slightest. Were you there when we, when we studied the book of Joshua and the first person that was saved as they're, as they're going into this, this new land and, and many people died, but one person that was shown mercy was whom? Oh, Rahab. Was Rahab the prostitute that God walked in? She was helpful. And then later on, she's mentioned in the hall of faith. And, and then she becomes part of the family line of Jesus, the Messiah. If God hated women, he's surely not going to use Rahab, the prostitute, in the family line of Jesus. When we look at the book of Ruth, Women are the main character. When you, when you look at the book of Esther, Esther is used by God to save a nation. You can look at Deborah, and, uh, surrounded by a bunch of dudes doing a whole lot of warrior, like gladiator type stuff. Here comes Deborah putting a tent spike through someone's head. It would make for a killer movie. Pun intended. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Women have such value. You would read through the Gospel of John. Would you say that Jesus doesn't value women? No, you would get to chapter 3 or 4 and realize he's at a well with a woman that probably comes from a sleazy background and he's 
giving her the time of day and talking to her. You, would be, you were here two weeks ago when, when in John chapter 8, Jesus is taking a woman caught in an affair and, and, and where the religious people, society would say, who cares about the dude? Let's attack the woman and, and saying that, that, that Jesus says, no, she has value, she has worth, and we're going to protect her and love on her and show her grace and mercy. There's no way to read this for its intended purpose and come to the conclusion that God hates women. Men and women are created in the image of God. Why would a woman's image be any less important than my image? We make up the image of God. And so I read through this and I realize that, that God doesn't hate women. And so I, 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 can, I can look at this with, with confidence. But then, then I had somebody in my high school days that would say, well, okay, not that. But what about he used sinful people? He, I, she, she read through this book and she said, I'm not going to read anything written by the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul, he was a bad guy. He, he killed people. He was a murderer. And so uh, he, she literally took the whole Bible, took it for truth, except for things written by the Apostle Paul, because he was a bad dude until he met Jesus. And I, I look at that. I'm like, I'm not willing to throw away the whole book because of Paul or because David was used to write Psalms in the, New Test or in the Old Testament. I look at that, and I find such great hope. That if God can use Paul, if he can use David, surely I have hope. We believe in uncommon relationships. What more uncommon relationship than holy God with sinful man? And as I look at the authors that he used, I find such great hope in it. And so Paul is talking about that this is a profitable, profitable book. It helps our endless growth. If we're going to be as Christians, if we're going to be growing, that there's no limit to the number of lives that can be reached, but there's no limit to the impact that Jesus can have on us, the unbelieving world is looking at us and saying, you're not trying to grow. You just are, are judging. You don't care that this book has any worth. We better live as if it does have worth because it, has, it is profitable. It does have value. And so he, Paul gives us four ways in which this is profitable and how you and I as Christians should find it to be profitable. First is in its teaching. I don't know how to live like Jesus if I don't study the life of Jesus. I don't know how to live a holy life if I don't read, read the pages of Scripture. I don't know what God expects of me if I don't read the pages of Scripture. And so I need to use this book for teaching. You don't want me to get up here every single Sunday or Thursday and give you my opinion. If I only ever gave you my opinion, then this is eventually going to be a room full of Red Sox fans, a room full of Patriots fans, 305, they play the Jags. This is going to be a... You don't want my opinion. You want everything to be of the word of God. My opinion is stupid. This is what's important. And so we teach the word of God unapologetically. And part of that is because it, it brings reproof in our lives. Now, that's a word he used. That's, again, you're not going to be around the water cooler in your science class tomorrow and be like, I'm sorry, professor. I'm going to have to reproof you on that. Like, eh, okay. Like, I've never gone to Ava and been like, Ava, we had a discussion. I'm going to reproof you for a second. But... Just bear with me. Like, that, that doesn't get said, right? So here's what that fancy word simply means is to point out error. And as I study this book, I'm going to real, realize some of my thinking is garbage and that I need to align it to this. I'm going to read this book and realize some of my actions, some of what I'm doing isn't, isn't holy, isn't like Jesus, and so I need to change things. It shows me my errors, and that's one of the ways that we can tell if somebody's living in sin, potentially. No longer do they, does this book have any value because it's confronting ugly things inside of them. No longer do they want to be around church people because if they're going to hold up the word of God, 
And that's going to convict me. That's going to be uncomfortable. But then what happens if they look at it and they're, and they're rebuked? And they, they say, yeah, there is error. Then the second, the third thing that Paul talks about is correction. That we have to be, we have to be people that when people are, have corrected, when they've changed their course of action, that we are full of grace and mercy and inviting people back in. I believe in a God of second chances. We better live as such. And so if someone takes the word of God seriously and says, my thinking was faulty or my actions were wrong, then by God's grace, we better take them in and forgive and, and sh- extend mercy. And so that's part of correction. And lastly, it's for the training up of righteousness. That's part of, like, if you're a parent, you raise your kid to be an adult. This book helps me be an adult Christian. <laughs> we did a series called Adulting. Check it out. It's on YouTube. <laughs> but those are ways to live as if the word of God has value. If we discount that book and fail to take it seriously... Why on earth would our unbelieving friends take it seriously? So here's how I do it in the morning. I, I wake up at between 4 and 4.30 in the morning, and I have a, some habits. This doesn't make me spiritual. Uh, waking up at 4.30 in the morning stinks. It doesn't make one spiritual. It just straight up stinks. But I do it because I have an iPhone with an alarm clock. Y'all got an iPhone with an alarm clock? I'm, not th- I'm nothing special. You just set your alarm, and you, you can wake up. It's hard for any, everybody. But I wake up, and the first thing I do is, is I, I have a five-year journal where I write a paragraph about the, the day previously. And, and, and what I get to do through this is, um, towards the beginning of the year now, because it's January, I, I get to look back now and see what God was doing a year ago. And, and I, get to sh- I get to see, like, man, like, this was an issue a year ago? Oh, my goodness, God, you met me in that. Thank you, Lord. Praise Jesus for that. By tracking this, I get to see where God shows off, shows up, and did incredible things. But then then I go to God's Word, and I start journaling. I start journaling in God's Word. It doesn't make me special. These are on Amazon. Y'all got Amazon? Two-day prime. This trash to your house. All right, so, so you, you, I get in there, and I start writing about the Word of God. I'm in Philippians right now. I take like two or three verses and just start grappling over it. And one of the questions I wrote was, God, help me, help me to be a person that finds purpose behind suffering. God, help me to help others who are, are, who are struggling uh, through, through an element of suffering. And those are some questions that I, I wrote about myself and, and reflected upon as, as I was journaling and reading the Scriptures. And so then after I do that, I... I go to a prayer journal. Nothing's fancy. It's on Amazon. It's $7.80 something cents. And I just start writing my prayers. Pray for people that don't know Jesus. I pray, God, help me to be a person that shows grace and, and forgiveness to people and is patient with people. So that's how I take the word of God seriously, but why? I take it seriously because I know my thinking goes to garbage when I don't do it. I know that when Ava and I, are, as parents, are, st- are stressed to the max, that, that when we have one of those uh, marriage discussions, that, that one of us that are struggling through it, like the person that's struggling with the concept is usually the person that's not in God's word because, because we're, we're not thinking correctly. And usually the person that is in God's word is, is helping make sense of a situation. Their perspective is just a little bit better. And, that, and both of us at times struggle with this. And so it, this helps me handle life and live as if the word of God has any, any value at all in it better. The third offer that it offers to us, it's an offer of hope. It's an offer of growth. It's an offer of completion. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It is meaningless to read this journal about it and then do nothing about it. This will bring completion when it brings good works. 
When we read this and, and our unbelieving friends say, well, your God is a, bunch of, is a bunch of hate, you're a bunch of hate. But when we read this and we're inclined to go to a laundromat and throw a few quarters in the machine and say, no, we love you. When, when we read this and we're inclined to say, well, we're going to give away free gas or we're going to do this, that, the other thing, that's, that's love in action. And this better put love in action. So it brings to completion that we would be perfect before Jesus, which will happen. We struggle through it, but it will happen when we get to Jesus. The way that you live, does it show that you value the Word of God? Does it show that the Word of God has any worth? And if it doesn't, why would the un unbelieving world say it has value? Why would the unbelieving world say it has any, any, worth, or, uh, any worth whatsoever? The power behind this book is that it shows me Jesus, and the Holy Spirit uses it to transform my life. And so by the way that we live, it better show a transformative power that the Holy Spirit uses. So are we letting the Word of God transform us. Check out this video. In 1971, I was in Vietnam. I was in my um, mid-twenties. And my interpreter was a 17-year-old fellow by the name of Pham Hien, H-I-E-N. I hadn't seen him from 1971. Next time I spoke to him was 1988. 17 years later, he doubled up on his life by now. I said, Hien, what happened to you over all these years? He said, Ravi, you'll never believe if I told you the details. Let me tell you in a nutshell. Because I was a Christian, because I was an interpreter for the missionaries, because I interpreted for the American troops, I was one day arrested immediately and put me into prison. And as I was behind prison bars, they gave me the writings of Marx and Engels, brainwashed me into disavowing God. For month after month after one and a half years of sheer mental torture, I said, all right, I'm not going to believe in God anymore. I'm going to disavow that this God actually exists. And he said, and so what happened as I began to reflect upon those issues, try to think of all that was at stake, I said, all right, I'm not going to believe in God anymore. And I wake up tomorrow morning for the first time in my life, I'm not going to pray. And he didn't. That day, his commandant put him in care uh, to clean up the latrines in the prison. He said, it was horrible. The stench was awful, Ravi. He says, I could barely stand it. And as I was cleaning those latrines in the prison, I looked at the waste paper basket. He said, I saw pieces of paper with human excrement on it. And I was emptying it into a bag when suddenly with the corner of my eye, I had seen one of those was written in English. And I hadn't read English for so long now. I looked around when nobody was watching, washed away all the dirt from it and slipped that piece of paper into my pocket. I went back to my room that night, waited for all my roommates to go to sleep. And hidden under the mosquito net I, with a flashlight, I looked on that piece of paper. And on the right-hand side, it said, Romans chapter 8. And I started to read. And we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he goes on, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus justifies. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine? He began to read and read and he says, the tears poured down my face. I got on my knees and said, Lord, you wouldn't even let me get out of your reach for 24 hours. Forgive me. Next day, I went to the commander and said, do you mind if I clean the latrines every day? 
He went in every day and the commander had been given a New Testament by some missionaries a long time ago. He was using it for toilet paper every day in the latrine. He then would go wash the paper, put it in his pocket, bring it back. He was collecting the whole of the book of Romans here in a prison camp in Vietnam. Finally, they let him go and he was trying to escape. He built a boat with 53 others. Five Viet Cong came to him and said, you're trying to escape, aren't you? He says, no. Tell us the truth. You're trying to escape. He says, no. And they walk away. He says, here I go, God, again, trying to run my own life. When you've showed me you are in charge, forgive me. If they come to me again, I will tell them the truth. An hour before they were to depart, these men came back, said, Hien, you're trying to leave this country, aren't you? He said, yes. What are you going to do? Put me back in prison. They took him into a room, shut the door and said, no, we want to go with you. They got onto that boat and on the high seas, he and said they would have been drowned. But these men were expert skippers and were able to move this boat ultimately to safety and to Thailand. Today he lives in California where he's finished his business degree, serving the Lord in Christian ministry, remembering what God had done for him in the past. Ladies and gentlemen, he is not only the God who is our heavenly father, he is active in our life. It won't, uh... It won't show you how to change your oil. It won't show you how to answer every single question in science class. But it will show you the person of Jesus. And he is eternal and he has eternal worth. So my challenge for us today, Christians and non-Christians, is to try reading it for its intended purpose. And we have Gospels of John on your way out. Uh, we don't have many left because somebody in the first service took a whole stack, which is a good thing. Uh, so there's a few left. Uh, but I want to challenge us this week to collectively read through the Gospel of John and say, God, your intended purpose is to show me Jesus. Show me Jesus. If you're trying to figure out something else, if you're trying to figure out something with science, if you're trying to figure out another philosophy, if you're trying to figure out, you will probably come up short. But I believe God meets us every time we look through his, the pages of the Bible and says, show me Jesus. <laughs> so read three chapters a day. As Christians, yes, sometimes we beat people up with it. We show everybody the problem without showing them the answer. I think we need to start doing both. <laughs> this isn't to beat people up. It's to say that there's things in our lives that aren't quite there yet. <laughs> but here's Jesus, and he's how you can find completion through him. So John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's in the pages of Scripture because it's about Jesus. That Jesus would look at us and he would be born under the law. That he would be born in a time where people had to try to live perfectly. And he would be the completion of the law. And that he lived perfectly doing what you and I cannot do. But then died. That God took his wrath out on Jesus instead of you and I. And ask that we would simply believe in him. Not that we would live perfectly, although we'll strive for it. We'll strive to let Jesus live his life through us. But, but it comes with belief in Jesus Christ that he died for you and I. And so my prayer is that we would read through these pages and find Jesus and find hope in what we cannot do but what he did for us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for a moment to stress who you are. Father, to declare your name, to declare forgiveness, to declare, Father, that you are perfect, we are not, and in you we find forgiveness. 
Father, I thank you for, for showing us a book, for giving us a book that would, would, would be your holy, inspired, authentic, inerrant word of God. Father, showing us how we should live and showing us that we don't do it, but giving us an answer through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that there would be some now that would find you, that would say yes to you, say, say yes to that. I've never done this before, but, but I'm going to say yes to Jesus. I'm, I'm going to place faith in him that he did what, what I can't do. Or, Father, I pray that throughout the week as we're reading through the gospel of John, the book of John, Lord, that, Lord, that you would show up and show us who Jesus Christ is, remind us of who Jesus is. And if anybody would like to put their faith in Jesus Christ, it simply goes by declaring it to him with something like this, God, I am sorry. As I understand the little about your word that I might know, Father, I understand that I am not perfect, and I am sorry. Lord, I'm thankful that Jesus was born and lived it out perfectly. Father, I am thankful and I place my faith in that you took out your wrath on Jesus instead of me. Today, I accept that gift. I want that gift and I'm thankful for it. And I will choose to give your son space to live his life through me. I love you, Jesus. In your name, amen. And if you just prayed that, angels party when somebody is corrected and turns to Jesus. And so in that regard, it's only appropriate, appropriate for us to end with one more song of worship.